Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Irish History Podcast is brought to you exclusively by the support of listeners like yourself. You can help the show by donating at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Hi folks and welcome to the show. This episode, The Revolution Underground, looks at the Irish War of Independence in the Castlecomer collieries and contains fascinating stories with everything from ambushes, smuggling, kidnapping, industrial sabotage and strikes, all in a frantic two-year period between 1919 and 1921. To begin the show, we need to take a look at the build-up to the War of Independence and the situation across Europe in late 1918. At the end of the last podcast, we covered the period up until the end of World War I. Now when four years of unparalleled bloodshed and violence came to an end on November the 11th, 1918, Literally every corner of Europe, from the Black Forest in Germany to the Baltic, had been changed forever. Millions had spent years in a surreal world of death, filthy trenches and slaughter, on a level unimaginable previous to 1914. However, for most, if they thought they were going back to the world they had left behind when they went to war, they were in for a rude awakening. For Germans, they returned home to find that the German Empire was no more, the Kaiser having fled to Belgium. Likewise, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was breaking up to be replaced by several countries, while what had been known as the sick man of Europe for decades, the Ottoman Empire, finally died. In many countries, the end of the war caused huge internal divisions as well. Workers were gravitating towards communism and socialism, having been inspired by the Russian Revolution of 1917, which founded the Soviet Union. Indeed, socialist revolutions broke out in Germany and Italy in 1919, but both were violently crushed by fascist militias. Europe was in turmoil. When Castlecomer's First World War veterans arrived back in the town, the initial impressions must have been that little had changed, but soon they too found that their home had been transformed by the war, albeit in a slightly less dramatic fashion. 
While they may not have been preparing to launch a communist revolution, the workers in the mines around Castle Comer were increasingly radicalised. Life at home during the war had not been easy. Even though leading miner Thomas Campion testified at the Irish Coal Industrial Committee that their wages had nearly tripled between 1914 and 1919, this masked a difficult reality for many miners. The cost of living had soared during the war, as the government had struggled to keep inflation under control. It was hardly a surprise then that in 1919, as the soldiers filtered back home, they found the town's miners, like many across Europe, were in the process of joining a radical trade union, the ITGWU, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. The ITGWU had been formed by Big Jim Larkin in 1907 and had gained widespread fame in 1913 when they had led 20,000 workers during the Dublin lockout after Dublin bosses had tried to break the union. Ultimately, they lost that dispute, but by the end of World War I, they were growing rapidly again and the Castlecomer miners would be among 100,000 fellow members by 1920. While the miners had a long history of militancy, it had been somewhat haphazard at times. However, now that they were supported by a well-organised union, they were prepared for the uncertain times that lay ahead. The price of coal would fluctuate wildly in the coming years, and a bitter struggle would break out between the workers and their employers as to who would bear the brunt of this. While the arrival of the ITGWU represented considerable change in the town, the returning soldiers found an even more dramatic shift in political life in Castlecomer. When they had joined up in 1914, the soldiers had left an Ireland that had been dominated by demands for home rule, a form of autonomy within the British Empire. In fact, on the eve of war, it seemed home rule was about to be introduced. These plans had been shelved during the conflict, but by 1918, Few had any interest in resurrecting them in Ireland. Most people now wanted a lot more. The brutal wave of repression by the British Army that had followed the 1916 Rising and then a threat to introduce the military draft in 1918 had radicalised the population. Home rule was considered by many a meek demand as the majority of Irish people increasingly supported full independence. This changed world was never clearer than at Christmas 1918. On December the 18th, the Irish people went to the polls in the first general election held since the war had ended. Nothing symbolised how much the world had changed during the war than the results. Sinn Féin, who called for independence, but had been a tiny party on the margins of politics in 1914, stormed home, winning 73 of the 101 seats in Ireland. The Home Rule movement only managed a miserly six while Unionist candidates, those opposed to both Home Rule and Independence, managed 22. This result now set in train a series of events that would very quickly lead to the outbreak of the War of Independence and the radicalised miners in the Castlecomer collieries were soon caught up in this conflict. After the 1918 election, Sinn Féin, who believed in Irish independence, refused to take their seats in the British Parliament in Westminster. Instead, they convened the first meeting of the Doyle, or Irish Parliament in Dublin, in January 1919. Meanwhile, on the very same day, an ambush by IRA volunteers killed two policemen in Solahead Beg in Tipperary, 
in an event which would later be recognised as the opening shots of the Irish War of Independence. Now this war, which began at a very slow pace, was not like the battles of World War I where huge armies faced each other. Instead, in Ireland, the conflict was a guerrilla war waged by the Irish Republican Army against the British Army. The police, called the Royal Irish Constabulary, and later a paramilitary police force called the Black and Tans. While the war was slow to escalate through 1919, it nevertheless had a major impact in Castlecomer and the mines. Indeed, these mines were crucial to the IRA's campaign in Kilkenny in what is now a forgotten and neglected aspect of the war. From the outset of the conflict, the British authorities and Richard Wandesford, the owner of the mines in Castlecomer, were worried that the IRA would raid the collieries. Given the nature of the work, there was large amounts of explosives stored at the pits and in early 1919, the British Army were stationing soldiers to guard the supplies of gelignite. This, however, was stretching the Army's resources and as the war intensified, all explosives were moved to the more secure British Army barracks 12 miles away in Kilkenny City in October 1919. While this may have placed the gelignite beyond the reach of the IRA, There were still concerns that the military convoys, which brought the explosives from Kilkenny when needed, would be attacked. Such was the general concern that Richard Wandesford, a staunch Unionist, stated that in no uncertain terms he would close the mines if these convoys were interfered with in any way. Ultimately though, his fears were ill-founded. From recently released archival documents, it's clear that the IRA had taken a decision early in the war that under no circumstances were the Wandesford collieries to be raided or the convoys of explosives to be attacked. While the IRA wanted to avoid a backlash if a raid resulted in the mines being closed and huge job losses in the area, they also had other concerns. Unbeknownst to the Wandesfords or the military authorities, the Castlecomer colliery was already the source of nearly all the explosives used by the IRA in Kilkenny. Later in his life, Paddy Dunphy, the captain of B Company of the 3rd Battalion of the Kilkenny Brigade of the IRA, revealed that miners who were sympathetic to the Republican movement were already smuggling large amounts of explosives out of the pits. At the end of a day's work, they took small amounts of gelignite, which they folded into the turnips of their trousers. Given the miners had to pay for their own explosives in the mines, the IRA then embarrassed them. This smuggling saw one miner, according to Dunphy, take 100 kilos of gelignite out over a prolonged period of time. However, while the IRA resisted the temptation to raid the gelignite stores and risk the future of the mines, the war still threatened closure of the pits in a manner few could have anticipated at the outset of the conflict. As mentioned earlier, by late 1919, The miners in Castlecomer were members of the Radical Trade Union, the ITGWU. This union was supportive of independence and indeed many of its officials were members of Republican organisations. In Castlecomer, the branch secretary, Thomas Campion, was an active Republican and in May 1920 he was actually imprisoned for his activities. However, strange as this may sound, it was the miners' own union's support for independence that nearly shut the mines in late 1920. As the War of Independence intensified through 1920, the ITGWU got directly involved in the conflict. From May 1920, in an effort to cripple the British Army, 
the Union instructed its members not to transport any British Army troops or handle war materials. Given they organised most of the transport workers in the country, this meant the British Army could no longer use the train lines, the easiest, fastest and crucially, the safest way to move across the country. Unable to move by rail, the army was forced to use roads where they were easily ambushed. Known as the munitions strike, this was highly effective. However, it was disastrous for the Castlecomer coalfields. As their fellow ITGWU members refused to handle explosives or transport soldiers, this meant that no convoys of gelignite could reach Castlecomer after May 1920. Within five months, the entire colliery faced closure and the workers were increasingly desperate. While most supported independence, they certainly didn't want to lose their jobs. Now, while someone like Richard Wandlesford could never hope to convince the militant trade union, the ITGWU, to allow soldiers use trains to bring him explosives for his mines, a deputation of workers from Castlecomer approached the Labour Party and they had much better success. Having been founded by radical trade unionists in 1912, the Labour Party leader, Thomas Johnson, secured an exemption for Castlecomer in an effort to save jobs. On November the 3rd, 1920, this exemption saw the first British troops using trains in Ireland in nearly six months to deliver explosives to Castlecomer. Incidentally, a few weeks later, the munitions strike was actually broken when large numbers of the transport workers were sacked. While Castlecomer had a somewhat unusual experience of war through 1920, elsewhere the conflict had begun to escalate. In early 1920, the IRA switched to a policy of attacking and often destroying rural and isolated British army barracks. In the Castlecomer area, this strategy would see both cloning and the rail yard barracks burned in 1921. Then the arrival of the paramilitary police, known as the Black and Tans, in March 1920 to support the British army, who were now struggling to maintain control, only served to increase the ferocity of the conflict. The Black and Tans, whose name would become a byword for brutality, burned several towns in later 1920 in reprisal for IRA attacks. Nevertheless, despite the escalation, there had been no major violence in the Castlecomer area. That was until 1921. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The opening days of 1921 in Castlecomer signalled that the war was about to take on a new level of intensity in the town. On January the 5th, 1921, the body of a 35-year-old farm labourer, Michael Cassidy, was found on the farm where he worked 
with a sign around his neck saying, Spies beware. Later, Gareth Brennan, a senior figure in the IRA in Castlecomer, and later Deputy Gar the Commissioner, reveals the IRA killed him because he was an informer. Cassidy had a tendency to get drunk and shoot his mouth off about how he was going to get IRA volunteers. This serves to alert the IRA to the fact that he used to meet black and tans at the blacksmith's forge and provide them with information. A few months later, the first major operation was carried out in Castlecomer at a place called Urskerty outside the town. By 1921, the IRA were increasingly finding it difficult to lure the British military from their barracks as they knew once they left these compounds they were liable to be ambushed. However, it was widely known in Castlecomer that early each month the army drove through the hills around the town delivering pensions to former members of the Royal Irish Constabulary. On May 2nd, 1921, the IRA planned an ambush in Uskerty Woods in hills just above Castlecomer where they knew the military would pass. This was ideal territory for an ambush. The plan was to fell a tree across the road and use this as a blockade. In their preparation, the IRA assumed the army would approach from Castlecomer and took their positions behind the felled tree on this basis. However, as they lay in wait, a scout informed them that the soldiers were actually, in fact, behind their position, drinking in a pub called the Salmon Pool. A rush then ensued when they received news that the soldiers were now leaving the pub and heading in their direction. The IRA volunteers found themselves on the wrong side of their own barricade and what followed was a chaotic disaster. As they scrambled over the tree to take up new positions, the military convoy arrived and the volunteers began firing. As the soldiers returned in kind, a wild firefight broke out. While no one was killed, one man, an 18-year-old scout, Jim Comerford was taken prisoner. He was taken to Castlecomer Barracks, but in a most unusual twist of events, he was released without charge, but not until he had had his teeth smashed in with the butt of a rifle. This Jim Comerford, incidentally, would emigrate in 1922, later become a judge in New York, and famously banned Senator Robert Kennedy from the St. Patrick's Day Parade in 1967. Back in 1921, while Jim Comerford nursed his battered teeth, the IRA were preparing to up the ante in Castlecomer. A week after the Uskerty ambush, they launched a chaotic attack on the barracks in the town on May the 8th. The plan was to try and fool the guards into letting them in, but this failed when the sentries refused to open the gates. Through the summer, they continually devised numerous ruses to get the army to leave the security of their barracks as the war intensified, but these all failed. Finally, in mid-June 1921, permission was given to attack the British Army on one of the few occasions they were known to move through the countryside when delivering explosives to the mines. The date of June the 18th was chosen and a location about a mile east of Castlecomer and a place called Coolbawn was selected. The delivery of explosives was not to the Wandersford Mines but to a smaller nearby colliery at Wolf Hill. Detailed plans were now set in train. Trees would be felled across the roads between Kilkenny and Castlecomer to stop reinforcements coming in quickly. The plan was simple. A homemade landmine that had been designed and constructed by Michael Fogarty, an engineer in Castlecomer, was going to be detonated as the first of the three trucks in the convoy passed over it. This would trap the lorries behind it on the road. Meanwhile, around 30 IRA volunteers would take up position behind a stone wall. Divided into three columns of ten, each group 
would focus their attack on one lorry. On June the 18th, preparations were well underway by 3am in the morning as the mine was being dug into the road. In the dead of night, there was no fear of traffic, but as the sun rose in the eastern sky on what was a glorious summer's morning, this began to change and severely complicated things, as we will see next. From about 6 o'clock in the morning, traffic began to build up on the roads approaching the ambush site. Carters were bringing coal from mines to the east of Castlecomer, and given it was a Saturday, there was also large numbers of farmers on the roads as well. This had been anticipated, and the IRA volunteers had made contingencies. As each person approached and saw the preparations for the ambush underway, the risks of allowing them to continue into Castlecomer were too great because they could warn the British of the impending attack. So, instead, any cart that arrived was led down a lane from the road out of sight and the drivers were taken and held captive until the ambush had been executed. By 7 o'clock, there was over 50 people under guard with a large number of carts corralled by the IRA. As the day progressed, other traffic continued to build up. Farm labourers were on their way to work and it was here that a crucial mistake was made. When one farm labourer arrived at the ambush site, for some unknown reason, it was decided to let him through. Now this man worked on the farm of the Draper sisters, something that would become crucial later in the story. So it's worth remembering that name, the Draper sisters, as I'll bring it up again later. Soon after this man was let through, the IRA volunteers were distracted by what seemed to be a much more serious development. Around nine o'clock, a military airplane circled the ambush site and many present were unnerved. The build-up of carts that had been taken off the road was clearly visible from the air. However, the plane flew off again in the direction of the Curra army base, far from Castlecomer. Nevertheless, it was disconcerting. As the clock approached ten, there was still no sign of the convoy from Castlecomer, which only added to the frayed nerves of the IRA volunteers. That said, scouts positioned on high ground with binoculars could see inside the barracks from a distance. Their intended targets, the lorries, were still within the walls. Then, at ten o'clock, things began to happen. The lorries were loaded up with troops, which meant that they could be at the site of the ambush within ten minutes. While no doubt many were trying to swallow their fears, disastrous news now arrived. Policemen could be seen moving through the fields from Castlecomer towards Coolbawn, where the IRA lay in wait. Worse still, further intelligence informed them that another group of policemen were approaching from the opposite direction. Shortly afterwards, their worst fears were confirmed when the British Army were seen moving on foot to positions to the rear. It was clear what was happening. The ambush was about to be ambushed. The decision to escape was taken and the IRA brigadier sounded a whistle and called out, We're surrounded on all sides. Retreat by the river to the south. Chaos ensued now as men understandably feared for their lives. As they began to flee to the nearby woods, situated below the road, a machine gun opened up. One volunteer, Jack Hartley, was killed and several members of his column were now trapped as the British Army and policemen closed in. As their position was raked with gunfire, they now only had one option to escape. They had to cross the road and climb into the meadow beyond. It must have been clear to them. Once they broke their cover, they would be dangerously exposed. Nevertheless, they had no option. Five made the dash, but two, Nicholas Mullins and James Doyle, were hit by gunfire. Nevertheless, of the 30 or so involved in the ambush, 27 made good their escape. 
While Jack Hartley had been killed outright, the two others who had been shot, Nicholas Mullins and James Doyle, were put on carts and taken back to Castlecomer Barracks. As they were drawn through what must have been a busy Castlecomer, given it was a Saturday morning, onlookers can only have had a sense of foreboding gloom of what lay ahead for these men. Both had been shot, but neither were taken to Castlecomer Hospital. Mullins would die of his wounds in the barracks that night. Doyle, however, did survive, temporarily at least. He was, however, later tried and sentenced to death. In the summer of 1921, a dark shadow now hung over the town, but it was a town divided between those who favoured union with Britain and those who favoured independence. All, by no means, were supportive of the IRA. Indeed, the Coolborn ambush came to symbolise these tensions that engulfed Castlecomer. The reason the ambush had failed was because someone in the community had informed the soldiers in advance. The following night, the IRA found out that the labourer who had been allowed to go to work on the Dreeper farm and had seen the preparations, subsequently informed his employers, Rebecca and Florence Draper, of what was afoot. The Draper sisters were staunchly Unionists and they took the decision to inform the British Army. While it's often not a perspective forwarded in discussions about the War of Independence, families like the Drapers were utterly opposed to the IRA and would probably have felt compelled to inform the police. They certainly would not have seen this as an act of treachery. Indeed, for them, it was probably the very opposite. One way or another, the 54-year-old Florence Draper went to Castlecomer by a back road, went straight to the barracks and informed the soldiers of what was about to happen. The night after the failed ambush, she would pay dearly for this. On June 19th, several IRA volunteers arrived at the Draper farm, which was known as Finsborough House. As the Draper sisters were taken from their home, one witness later testified about how they bitterly resisted by clutching the furniture. They knew what lay ahead once they were outside the house. Nevertheless, they were outnumbered, and after they were physically removed from their home, the building was set alight. Then the volunteers emptied the cattle from their farm sheds and burned them too. While it might sound strange to say, these women were lucky. Had they been men, they would almost certainly have been executed. Five weeks later, the Dreepers put the farm up for auction. That summer in 1921 was a time of war in Castlecomer and led to some of the darkest chapters in the town's history and women were sometimes picked out for harsh punishment. On one occasion, a party of armed men briefly abducted the 19 and 20-year-old daughters of miners from Morning Row outside the town. They were taken across some fields where they had their hair sheared by armed men. This was an act of ritual humiliation. The IRA claimed the two women had been consorting with black and tans, a charge both denied. Life during 1921 was far from easy. Indeed, when the British Army and the IRA called a truce on July the 11th, 1921, Manny and Castlecomer can only have breathed a sigh of relief, and none more so than James Doyle, who was languishing in a prison cell awaiting execution for his role in the Coolborn ambush. The truce had saved his life. While negotiations were opened between the Republican movement and the British government, Ireland now was in a most unusual position. There was in effect two governments, obviously first the British authorities, but also the Republican movement, who at this stage had its own army, operated its own court system and had its own parliament. However, neither were totally in control. In Castlecomer, this power vacuum 
in a period of truce and negotiation, became the backdrop for perhaps one of the bitterest strikes in the town's history. While negotiations between the IRA and the British authorities went on through late 1921, a bitter strike broke out in Castlecomer. This was precipitated by one of the most ill-judged moves in Richard Henry Wandersford's six decades at the helm of the collieries. In 1921, he had a workforce that was increasingly radicalised in a country where the government was falling apart and he took the decision to try and reduce wages in the colliery. Now, there can be little doubt that the War of Independence had been hard years in terms of the coal business. In 1921, the profits in the mines fell by around 90%, from just over £9,000 a year to just £900. There were lots of factors for this, not least among them that the international coal market was flooded with cheap German coal being used to pay reparations owed after World War I. However, Castlecomer miners were in no mood to compromise. The war years had been hard on them too. Food had been scarce and their work was always long, precarious and difficult. Meanwhile, workers' militancy in Ireland in general was soaring in these years. Hundreds of strikes were breaking out. Indeed, in February 1921, even the doctors in Castlecomer workouts had threatened to go on strike. Furthermore, given that most miners were Republican in outlook, they resented the fact that Richard Wandesford who was a unionist, was trying to cut their wages in a time when they had rising aspirations. Irish independence seemed within grasp as negotiations between the Republican leadership and the British authorities were underway. Therefore, in this context, their reaction to the threat of a pay cut was predictable. There was simply no way in these conditions they were going to accept it. On Monday the 19th of September 1921, 600 miners walked off the job and went on strike in opposition to the proposed cut. While this was far from unusual in Ireland of the early 1920s, within a week the Castlecomer strike had grabbed the headlines. On the evening of Saturday the 25th of September, six days into the strike, masked and armed men raided the houses of the mine managers Jay Whitaker and Jay Hargreaves. The armed raiders, presumed to be strikers, took both men hostage upping the ante massively. In an Ireland where there was no clear authority anymore, finding the managers would not be easy. However, even after this move, Richard Wandesford, the mine owner, wouldn't give in. A week later, with the mine managers still in captivity, the striking miners attended a major workers' demonstration held in nearby Kilkenny. The Castlecomer men struck a memorable appearance, marching in military formation, with newspaper reports noting the presence of the red flag of socialism above the column, illustrating that the mining community was increasingly influenced by left-wing ideas. By mid-October, there was no end in sight to the strike, and with the managers still missing, representatives of the ITGWU arrived in the town and along with the local parish priests set about trying to resolve the bitter dispute. Finally, after eight weeks, a compromise was reached. However, strangely, nothing was ever mentioned in the press about what happened to the kidnapped managers. They were definitely released, and the vague references in some reports about the Republican police authorities having been contacted may indicate the IRA was used as an intermediary between Wandesford, the police, and the radicalised miners. However, the resolution of this strike in November 1921 did not bring calm to the coal fields. On December the 6th in London, a treaty was signed between representatives of the Republican movement and the British government. The details of this were deeply controversial. Ireland was to be partitioned, 
with six counties in the northeast of the island to remain part of the United Kingdom. The remaining 26 counties would become known as the Free State, which was nominally still part of the British Commonwealth. Under the treaty, all British soldiers would be removed over a period of months from the 26 counties of the Free State. This treaty led to huge divisions within the Republican movement and by the summer of 1922, civil war had broken out. But long before that, events in Castlecomer took a turn for what might be considered the bizarre. While the government of the new Free State of Ireland was established in January 1922 and British troops slowly began to withdraw, there was still a huge degree of uncertainty as to who exactly was in power. Indeed, firefights frequently broke out between the IRA and British garrisons through early 1922, even though there was supposed to be a ceasefire. In Castlecomer, a group of alienated and disgruntled workers took advantage of this situation. Three years previously, Richard Henry Wandesford had carried out what was arguably one of his greatest achievements in Castlecomer. After 30 years of campaigning, he successfully secured the completion of a train line into the town, which also served the collieries. The railway coal depot was situated at a place called Deer Park, a mile north of Castlecomer. The coal mines were, however, spread out across the region, some five miles away from this depot. However, Wandesford installed a state-of-the-art system to transport the coal to the depot. An aerial ropeway, something pretty similar to a ski lift, carried buckets of coal over the Castlecomer landscape to this depot and automatically emptied the coal onto sorting screens. This move made the mines far more competitive and secured their long-term future, but naturally had implications for some workers. Those who had previously hauled the coal by hand were now out of a job. Amidst the uncertainty and confusion of the early months of 1922, as the British withdrawal got underway, the aerial ropeway was attacked. The Kilkenny people reported that on February 8th, a Wednesday night, 80 masked and armed men attacked the installation. The night staff were kidnapped and the ropeways were severed. The boiler and engine were broken up and an attempt was made to burn the engine house. This was a complete disaster. Five miles of this ropeway were destroyed. It would take an estimated five months to repair, costing several thousand pounds. Two of Castlecomer's biggest pits, the Rock and the Vera, were put out of action and 250 people were thrown out of work. This was completely different to any previous industrial action in the Castlecomer pits. Immediately, the branch of the radical left-wing ITGWU trade union in the colliery condemned the action and distanced themselves from it, something they had not done when the mine managers had been kidnapped. Thomas Campion, the branch secretary, wrote to the newspaper, The Kilkenny People, informing them that the union at a recent meeting had passed the following resolution. We, the miners and workers in the Castlecomer collieries, condemn the outrage on the aerial ropeway in the strongest possible manner, seeing that this outrage has thrown hundreds out of employment and wish to make it known that none of the employees encouraged, aided or abetted this outrage. While some tried to claim it was the IRA, this made little sense. Throughout most of the war, as we've seen, they had not attacked the mines in fear it would close the pits down. Given that they had now won that war, they were not about to destroy Ireland's biggest and best coal mine. They needed this mine to help what was going to be an independent Ireland. When I first came across this story, I began to wonder could it have been an act of vengeance by the British Army as they withdrew. But given that Richard Wandesford was a staunch unionist, this is 
and equally unlikely theory. While four men were arrested, no one was ever prosecuted. However, according to those who worked in the colliery in Castlecomer, the act was carried out by the disgruntled coal carters who had lost their job through the mechanisation and the installation of the aerial ropeway. Whether they hoped to get their work back or purely acted out of spite isn't known. All that happened was that nearly half of Castlecomer miners were out of work in some of the hardest economic times Ireland had experienced in decades. In early March, the British Army and police left Castlecomer in a moment that symbolised great hope and fears among the town's inhabitants. Undoubtedly, in Castlecomer House, Richard Henry Wandersford wondered what the future held in store for a family like his. They had lived in Castlecomer for nearly 300 years and dominated society. However, now that the British establishment was leaving, no one knew what lay ahead. Would he be welcome in an independent Ireland? Indeed, would he want to live in an independent Ireland, given many of his social class were leaving the country, while many more had been forced out during the War of Independence? Conversely, many of the miners no doubt expected big things from an independent Ireland. These hopes began to fade, though, very early on. In May 1922, the early shots of the Civil War broke out in a siege over Kilkenny Castle and the uncertainty of life during World War I and the War of Independence was set to continue. Join me next time for the final part in this series, when we will see the glory days of the town's coal mines, and then their tragic decline. Until next time, Sloan. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.